Hey, I'm Sachin. And I'm Adam. We interview the best leaders from around the world and unpack their failures, successes, and ideas they're passionate about. We do this because we think the best learnings in life don't come from a textbook. Rather, they come from open and personal conversations. Thanks for joining in and enjoy the episode. This week's episode was generally one of our favorite episodes to date. Some of the learnings are probably as impactful as a business degree. Before we dive in, we just really want to say thank you for being here. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend or subscribing. I won't annoy you anymore. Back to the episode. All right, we're live. Hello and welcome back to the show. So last week, Adam and I released a podcast of just us talking and we spoke a lot about our vision and what we want to try to build with the show. And our guest today really aligned with that vision. When I was making my morning tea today, I was reflecting a little bit and I was like, it's actually crazy that we're having the opportunity to talk to people like Mark Carnegie now. It would have felt like a dream a few years ago. Yeah, it's extremely exciting. So if you haven't heard of Mark, Mark has been a very, very influential private equity investor in Australia, venture capitalist, and he was previously an investment banker. He currently runs the firm MH Carnegie & Co., which is a private equity company with over $900 million of assets. And they invest across a wide range of asset classes, um, especially medical devices, which we know Mark is very passionate about. And he was previously also an investment banker and he ran the firm Carnegie Wiley & Co. So he's had a huge career, which has taken him across Australia, New York, London, all over the world. And we're very, very fascinated to talk to him about his career, but also about some of his passions, his beliefs, um, and the sort of learnings that he can give to some younger students. So Mark, thank you very much for coming onto the show. Very, very pleased to be here. Thanks both of you. Fantastic. <clears throat> And now, Mark, that was a very impressive intro. And if I was an audience member listening to that, I think I'd get a little bit of an imposter syndrome. So we like to ask our, our guests the first question, which is, what is a story or anecdote that shows who you are as a person? Okay, the best <clears throat> story I've got for this was when I was early about the, on in my career, about the same age as you two are, um, me and a great friend of mine went to see Jack Cowan, Hungry, Hungry Jacks and Domino's Pizza pizza billionaire and John Singleton who I think you'd regard as the greatest Australian advertising man and we were pitching him to invest in this food company we wanted to invest in so very much like a whole lot of your listeners out there trying to pitch at the moment anyway we're halfway into the pitch and Singer who's got you know one of the few people on earth who's got a um, shorter attention span than, than me said I get all of that but what are you here for and I said to him Singer we're here because we're young and poor and you're old and rich. And he looked at me and he said, mate, I'll swap you. And that's exactly how I feel about you guys today, which is you might be young and poor, but I'd swap you any day of the week. I think that's such an awesome anecdote because so many of our listeners and us, we're just constantly ambitious and hungry, but we've got to remember we're young and that is a real sort of a gem of a thing that we have. And I think Mark, you find it funny that Adam and I put, 50 to 60% of our net worth in crypto and angel investments, which is way above what we should be doing at our age. Very so fun. young enough. No, I, I, I would make a series of cases by the time we get to here that actually, if you look at your ability to walk away from the crypto wars with nothing and still have a great career, you'll learn a ton more. It's like this old guy, Jim Rogers, who was um, a partner of George Soros in the early days. And he said, 
people said, what's the best MBA? He said, starting a business, you'll, even if you lose all your money, you'll learn so much more doing that than you ever would at university. And I completely agree with him. And I watch people's side hustles now. And I think about my daughter, you know, they learn so much about business running their side hustle aggressively. So, you know, I think it's a terrible, terrible thing about the way that the economic rents of the um, of the internet world cascade to win and take all and network. But I think there is such, such opportunity, which we can talk about later. Yeah, that's definitely going to be a big topic. And it's funny you say that about um, sort of learning just from a business because me and Sachin have intensely debated before, should we try and do an MBA and go over to America one day? But we've just thought, why not do our angel investing? Why not start a business? Why not continue the podcast? Like you get just as much learning um, from those things these days. So it's a very pressing point. Um, and, and just moving on now, Mark. So we've talked to a lot of remarkable leaders, um, people from sort of politics, business, investing, and we love to understand their psychology about their sort of early influences and their, their, the things that drive them. So I'd like to pose the question to you. What were some of your early influences when you were growing up and when you were at university and how do those things motivate you today? Um, well, you know, my parents obviously were important figures. I think they gave the sense of actually wanting ambition, career, giving back, important part of the community and those sorts of things, um, <clears throat> all of that. So that was important. I think um, my professor at um, Melbourne University when I was doing um, zoology was a hugely important pers because, person for me because he was an iconoclastic thinker and so just the whole idea that being unconventional was an okay thing to do. Um, I'd come out of a very conventional, you know, privileged background and to hit somebody who was un as unconventional as him really, really, you know, shook up my expectation. Then over in England, um, I had a moral philosophy tutor who I don't think was the greatest moral philosophy tutor in the world, but he did a great job of talk when we were talking about the difference between what it took to pass exams and what it took to look about look at actually what is a justified theory of right action which is what I think moral philosophy is about and he sent me back to a book that I loved when I was young the lord of the rings as a great place to look at metaphors of what is the good life um, out of different cultures over a long period of time so that and then finally, I got a lot out of um, the debating society over in England. Um, so doing things that weren't, I got a lot out of that and I got a lot out of rowing um, as well. I don't think I got the greatest academic um, education at university, but as somebody said to me, when I asked him why he went to Cambridge, he said, <coughs> rather than Oxford, he said, well, I went for an education rather than an entertainment. I'd have to say I went for an entertainment, not an education. Yeah, that's very interesting. And I can definitely attest to the rowing point. Um, I used to row and it was very, very formative for my character. And just a quick bold on question to that. What actually took you to Oxford in the first place? Because we don't hear uh, about too many Australians that go over there, especially business leaders. Um, so it was basically, you know, I had a choice between going to America or Australia, we had a family that really thought overseas postgraduate education was an important thing. Um, my two brothers ended up going to the US and I went to um, England. 
And it was sort of cutting against the grain because I obviously ended up on Wall Street after it. It wasn't what I expected. But I had an absolutely fabulous time there, learned a lot, you know, found a wife, those sorts of things. So, um, and the good thing for people who are thinking about it now is you can basically, if you're trying to do stuff on hyperspace, you can go in and out of one of those MBAs at Oxford in nine months, you know, not including. So it's a pretty short space of time to go and think about um, postgraduate education and the network. I mean, my great friends came out of my time at Oxford um, and the network, whilst it isn't as good as the US MBA programs, it's, it's still pretty good. Yeah, we have one of our good mates is applying for the Rhodes Scholarship right now. So yep. we've heard a lot, of, lot, lot about it from the back end. And Mark, kind of as another bolt-on question, you were born into a very wealthy family. Obviously, Roderick Carnegie was your father who brought McKinsey to Australia. How did that influence what motivated you as a young man? Were you on a quest for information? Were you on a quest for prestige? Obviously, you ended up on Wall Street. What was those motivations like when you were a young man? No. I think at that stage, I really wanted to build a fortune. And there's a big difference between, I've always said there's a big difference between dad and me. Dad liked playing the scale defender hand, thinking about how a large organisation needed to protect itself and grow from the challenges. Whereas I've always found intellectually playing the challenger hand is a much more interesting thing to do. And then, you know, he was far more operational focus at operations and culture focus whereas i've been finance focused during my career just by virtue of the fact that that's what i build a fortune and then ended up realizing that i wasn't going to be a successful research scientist and yet i had some skills in finance and so it was just one of those feedback loops where i could do it um people patted me on the head it was a way to be successful that is how it went. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, it's great sort of tapping into those early motivations. And so sort of moving on to um, after your university experience, you had a, a number of experiences in London um, and New York, and you've worked with James Wolfenson, who was famously um, a very renowned banker and someone who was the head of the World Bank for 10 years as well. Um, and I actually read his book and he was a great man. And it's very, very sad that he passed away last year. But I'd love to hear from you, what were some of the things that you learned from James and those early sort of formative career experiences? Um, well, Jim was such a complicated and um, contradictory figure. Um, and But what I learned from him was he had an incredible, incredible way with human beings. So you go to a place like that and you think, hey, what his great skills are, are his financial skills. But him and Felix and the guys who were really at the top of that game, they were far more about psychology than they were about numbers. Now, obviously, being good on the numbers was table stakes. Um, you couldn't not understand that particular part. But it was, it was your reading of human nature and how to get things that otherwise couldn't get done, done by virtue of your reading of the people. And John, Jim was absolutely extraordinary about that he really really understood the human condition um in an incredible incredible way so that was a big big surprise i don't think i mean i know this would be a terrible thing to say but you know if i line him up against warren hellman who was another one of my great great mentors um 
Warren would have eaten Jim as if on a straight finance basis every single day of the week. But Jim's urge to meet, network, do all of those things, plus the fact that he could read people doing that, that was what built his career. That's, that's an amazing um, little anecdote because it's something we think about a lot as young people. And just as a bit of a tactical bolt-on question, how do you build that skills? Because, Mark, you obviously have those skills as well. And as people young and hungry to build a future fund, is there a way to develop those skills or do they just develop over time? Well, I mean, this probably you know, leads to an earlier question. I don't think you can go past Munger still as the absolute ground zero of a career in business, yeah? So I mean, for everybody who doesn't know, this is Warren Buffett's investment partner. There's a book out there called Paul Charlie's Almanac, which requires a pretty, you know, decent commitment. It, it and the books that run off it are a full university course, you know, regarded as at least that, if not two, you know, two separate courses. Um, to understand about your internal psychology, behavioural psychology, how things really, really work and stuff like that. And there radiates out now a sort of huge established literature behind Charlie. And for me, that was really the, the hinge factor in my career. Now, I've always been interested in human psychology, um, so that naturally appeals to me as well. Um, and, you know, I'd urge people to recognise that people don't have 360 degrees of psychological free will and what they claim their motivations are aren't their actual motivations as well. And you just need to be nuanced and appreciative of that. But the absolute have to is spend your time understanding Charlie because his whole multidisciplinary lattice work view of the world is the thing that's the breakout um in my view for how to make life work yeah i've heard excellent things about charlie munger um i've had i've had so many people recently recommend poor charlie's almanac so it's definitely someone to study um in you detail. can't get past it and but don't be sitting there and thinking it's easy and don't yeah. think you do it once regarded as okay you know if i have to do options theory and corporate finance regard that plus the follow-up reading is that level, but it's just immensely more important in terms of your career development than anything else. Yeah, well, Sachin will have to get onto that very, very soon. <laughs> um, so now turning towards the bulk of your career, Mark, when you're an investment banker, an investor, and you advise companies on massive deals like Qantas and Westfield, you did a lot of acquisitions and you worked as a venture capitalist. It'll, it'll be really hard to cover everything there because there's a lot there. But I'd love to find out from you, from being at the height of the business world for so long, what were some of the really key learnings that you have now that you can reflect on after that career? Well, I think the best quote still about investment banking is Herb Allen's quote. Um, so Herb Allen ran a business called Allen & Company, one of the absolute she-she investment banks. The thing he's most famous for in the world is that Allen and Company Sun Valley Conference that takes all of the tech glitterati and puts them together in a year. Um, but this is one clever, clever guy. He turned a million and a half bucks into a billion and a half dollars with his Columbia investment. This is no fool, right? And he said something which they forced him to retract later, but 
but he said it and he knew it was true, which is if you give me a slightly better than average dog, I can teach them to be an investment banker over a weekend, right? So I, I would just put a pencil, right, through all of that as actually relevant to anybody. And what I'd say if we, and this is bouncing around, is crypto is going to eat finance, yeah? So anybody who's sitting there and thinking I, the same, you know, that they want to go and have a career at Goldman or JP Morgan or anything like that, if you get anything out of this, all I tell you is I'll tell you the same thing as I told Nick Molnar. Like, it's the shittiest life. It's really, really stupid. The margins are about to collapse. Don't do it. <laughs> that, um, yeah. that is going to hit some of our guests in the heart because a lot of people listening, um, a lot of the university students are budding investment bankers, people that are sort of obsessed with the prestige signals of it. Um, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's an awesome gateway into something I think we're really excited to talk to you about, which is DeFi and where the world is moving. So Mark, you've been, you've had a lot to say, um, a lot about Bitcoin, but I think what's really interesting about the way you speak is that you're not actually a massive advocate for Bitcoin, but you're advocate for crypto and DeFi in general. Love to unpack kind of where you, where you first started learning about this stuff. Well, so back to everything radiates out from Charlie. So Charlie and Warren have this point, which is you'll get a lot by inverting. So what the crypto thing was, you know, it starts to roar. Everyone's talking about it. Yeah. And the tendency, if you're an old fat white guy, is to say it's all bullshit. It's a bubble, la, 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 as Buffett and Munger did. Yeah. But I went further and used Charlie's point about invert, right, which is just for a moment assume that the minority that are saying this is a real thing, yeah, are right, yeah? And all of my behavioural wiring was to say they were wrong and it was rubbish, yeah? And the moment that you invert this and say, just think for a second about what the world, you know, looks like if they're right and you're wrong, that is a scary place for a huge number of businesses, Yeah. If you look at actual a physical newspaper at the moment and think about how seldom that actually is part of anybody's life, yeah, and what a remnant population that is in the world. If you run the thought experiment on what happens if DeFi and the blockchain works, yeah, you feel like all of the rest of the financial system is going to look like newspapers in 20 years' time. Yeah. Now I continue to think that Bitcoin is, you know, is everything Taleb says it is, which is, you know, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's got no real function, la, 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 la. So we can debate that because I know that there are a lot of people who are cleverer than me that don't agree with that. And my partners in my fund say absolutely not. Bitcoin, you know, is the real deal. So there is contest about that. But what I've been saying to people is just for a moment, assume that Taleb's right. Nick Taleb wrote The Black Swan. I'm sure some of the people know, some of them don't. Um, but he's a really, really important naysayer for crypto at the moment. But just assume for, for a moment he's right on Bitcoin, which I actually think he's better than average too. Ether has completely jumped the shark now, yeah? 
and you look at how much is actually getting transacted on Ether, um, all of the protocol layers that are getting built on that, those are real businesses. You know, Cardano, Polkadot, Hedera, that's not trivial stuff, what they're doing in terms of reimagining. And this is a long speech, but, you know, what they said, what Buffett and Munger said, which was assume you could get your newspaper on an iPad and somebody came along and offered you a physical newsprint newspaper, right? How enthusiastic would you be about swapping? Well, I'd say the same, which is if you look at the payments rails available in crypto, yeah, if you had them and that was the way you transacted financially, yeah, who would want to go and do the rest of it? Not many people, I don't think. Mm, I think that's a great mental model to think about problems. Just think about the counterfactual. How would life be in that counterfactual situation? And would people want to go back? I think that's a really sort of important thing that our listeners can take away. And just stepping back from the sort of large market caps, a lot of these coins and DeFi, what do you think of the underlying trends driving this movement? And why do you think these trends are going to be persistent? I think in the same way as you, if you, I mean, we're drinking on a fire hose now, but people will always say, look at what happened with the Gutenberg Press, where it took the cost of transforming, you know, translating a page of information down by a lot, you know, anywhere between one-tenth and one-fiftieth of where it was before, yeah? Now information is absolutely free. Yeah, it's gone to free. And then... The second thing that's happened here is that all of the um, mechanisms that are going to deal with um, how we live in a world like that um, are still getting figured out. And the blockchain basically says that you don't have to trust. Yeah. And if you combine that that is a real, real head stretcher, yeah? So what I say to people at the moment is, I think Balaji is going to be the next generation's um, manga, even though manga says everything to do with crypto is rubbish. And so my recommendation for people who are trying to actually deal with the enormity of what is about to crash on their heads at the moment is listen to that Ferris Balaji podcast and get his email yeah um and just start drinking from that fire hose i will do a bad job i'm just too old i'm not crypto native i'm not a computer native yeah but i can say you know point to him and go that guy that guy as the person who can do a better job of explaining it to you yeah, large um, <laughs> certainly made a name for himself in the tech. So you go, Sachin. Yeah, no, I was going to say we've um, we've drunk from Balaji's fire hose, but we'll be continuing to drinking from it. But Mark, I was going to say what I love about you is that you've obviously been very successful in the traditional finance world, and it'd be very easy for you to kind of sit back and say, "Look, I don't want to learn about this stuff. I've been successful. I was at the height of the business world, etc." But you're really open-minded to it, and I think. It's an inspiration to me because when I get to your age, I think that's what I want to be like, still curious, still looking at what's to come and not kind of um, not not undercutting something before you know more about it. So I find that a really inspiring trait. And 
shifting gears a little bit more, um, over your career, you've been really spoken about civic participation in Australia. And Adam and I spent a lot of time talking about what makes a great future leader and what the future of Australia looks like. So we'd love to kind of get into a discussion around civic engagement and why you think it's important for our youth. Well, I think ultimately people are unwilling to recognise just what an incredible accident, the positive accident of birth it is to live in Australia. And these lines from scientists about if I saw far, I did it because I stood on the shoulders of giants exist both from scientific progress, but also from cultural progress. Yeah. So again, we can go a hundred different directions about why building things up, maybe only an inch, you get to build them up in a whole life is so much more important than tearing them apart. Because I think the ability to tear society apart is a lot more you know at risk than people understand if you look at civilizational collapse yeah um that is a real thing and you tear it down way way faster than you build it up so the first point i'd make is yeah we have had over this coronavirus time a situation which whether you like it or not has completely and utterly changed the geopolitical balance of the world where the Chinese have taken three or four giant steps forward in terms of the relative balance of power between them and what I'd call the West. Yeah. Now you can debate, is it good? Is it bad? Is China an expansionary power, etc. But the whole idea that that happened while our mind was completely and utterly turned in different directions and inwardly just gobsmacks me. And then the fact that Australia decided that it was going to be the cat's paw of one of the most criminal um, administrations in America's history in terms of picking a fight with the Chinese with absolutely no view about how that was going to work rather than build a third-party coalition of Japan and India just dumbfounds me. So big, long speech, probably a sideline for this politics. But the answer is, you know, you can be pretty concerned about what the West is doing to itself at the moment, yeah? And I think that civic participation by the people who are about to get past the ball out of the scrum is a really, really important thing. Um, So there's, you know, that, I think, is really important. And then I just go back to, you know, Sarpedon's speech to Glaucus in the Iliad about why, if you're lucky, yeah, and lucky means being born in Australia, being part of what I'd call the cognitive elite, yeah, you've got responsibilities, yeah. You get in a world that's, you know, getting more unequal for people in these societies, the people who are, are in listening to podcasts like this are amongst the pod, the cognitive elite, yeah? And I think the fact that you've been given a gift of Australian citizenship and being part of the cognitive elite Im- embeds in it a series of obligations as well in terms of the social contract, yeah? I'm very much an Ed- Edmund Burke view of how this all works. But as I say, you know, I assume that's another rabbit hole we don't have time to go down today. 
Yeah, me and Sachin just started smiling because our friend that we mentioned who's going for the road scholarship is absolutely obsessed with Edmund Burke and he recently just wrote an 80-page paper and we've heard way too much about Burke in our <laughs> lifetime. But it's well, of- but Yuval Levin wrote that Burke versus Payne book. So if anybody out there, however many thousand listeners really cares about that, there's a guy called Yuval Levin and he wrote an absolutely phenomenal book um, very short, very readable book about it. And if I'd been given that book when I was your guy's age, it would have helped me enormously frame the debate over left versus right politics. Mm, yeah, awesome. We'll put that in our show notes. So, so you just mentioned that young people should really be thinking about civic participation um, and sort of our privileges and our places in the world. So then what do you think young people these days should focus on? How should we engage ourselves in the sort of institutions um, and really participate to sort of give back to our country? Well, you know, before Google became evil, their slogan, don't be evil, I think was a pretty good one. Yeah. Um, I think ultimately, I don't agree with Munger. I think anything you do in the crypto space is likely to be societally productive. Yeah. And if I can get five guys to end up in crypto and women, I'm sorry, five guys and women to end up in crypto, not in finance. I think that will be, have been a societally productive podcast. Yeah. And the thing that I say to people about this is that history just gets washed away in current culture. So the original idea of giving a company limited liability and unlimited life was when people did it an extraordinary thing to convey. And so actually having a company with those characteristics required an act of parliament. And it required people to say, in order that we give you these special rights, you've got an obligation to show how this is societally productive. And I think that's just a nice little wireframe to think about it when you start your own businesses or join them, which is, hey, this is an entity which was only yeah, very recently um, taken away from having to be granted by virtue of an act of parliament. And do I feel that this company is um, going to do something that is you know, the opposite of getting granted these rights? What are the obligations and how to do it? I don't think you need to do more than that. I think the second part, which is a Taleb point again, is think through the second and third order consequences of what the business does, because it doesn't necessarily have to be that it's, you know, this virtue signaling rubbish. I don't know how much, how many people actually subscribe to the Financial Times, but there's an absolute flame war out there um, on the back of a couple of articles they wrote and a Medium article that um, is there from a guy who is doing all the social impact investing um, for... I can't remember BlackRock or somebody like that. So I think the whole, you know, societally productive versus um, virtue signaling rubbish is really, really hard to unpick. Yeah. We've done some stuff, you know, over a long period of time trying to audit societal productivity and stuff like that. It's not easy. Yeah. Um, And it's not capable of first order solutions in a way that you think. 
um, so I don't think there's an easy answer on that. I'm very, very cautious to say that I'm actually making um, a huge societal productivity, you know, productive gain for all the reasons we're back to Edmund Burke, which is, you know, if it was as easy as it, as the people advocating change and single generational change think it is, it would have been done before. People just aren't that fundamentally bad actors. So I've got to press you on that a little bit more, Mark, because me and Sachin are very, very interested in the idea of impact and sort of social impact investing. So what do you think are the mental models that people should use about whether to go into that sort of domain of investing? Do you think there can be proper impact achieved from investing in sort of socially sustainable and responsible companies? Or would you advocate for a view of capitalism where people just go where the sort of simply the most money can be made? Or do you think impact and money can be made together? I think, look, again, we could do five podcasts on this whole issue. I've spent a decade trying to do it with Michael Trail, who runs the Ramsey Foundation. Um, you know, he's been my partner in that over a long period of time. Don Luke, who runs the second soon-to-be-largest um, super fund in Australia, is my chairman over a long period of time. So we, it's not like we haven't spent a huge amount of time thinking about this. What I'd say to you is, ultimately, there are two things that, are, that make the thing go wrong, carry 80% of the weight of why capitalism you know, has had some problems. The first one is large-scale tragedy of the commons problems, yeah? So I'll assume everybody knows what one of those is, but it used to be that the common land got trashed, now it's the common air gets trashed and the common sea gets trashed, yeah? So big, big components of tragedy of the commons where what I think is it's a failure of government regulation, yeah, and issues to do with the way that democracy works and regulation works rather than issues of capitalism, yeah. Everyone knew going into building a capitalist system that the tragedy of the commons was going to be a big, big problem, and they just chose to ignore them in two really, really significant regards. And it's why I've always said, as opposed to all the crap that goes on about climate change, if you could find some way to do you know, a global carbon tax, that would be so much better than anything else. But we get down to the issue, which is 65% of Australians want to vote in favour of something, you know, urgent action on climate change. But it doesn't matter because you've got 10 seats that are going to swing the other way on it. And democracy is broken in that way. Yeah. So first is, you know, how do you deal with climate? I think there's a whole lot of problems on the climate advocates um, list as well. So this is the example of how <clears throat> impact investing goes wrong. If you look at all the crazies, the um, you know, Extinction Rebellion people and stuff like that, and a whole lot of, you know, sort of, you know, lovies who care about climate, and you say to them, well, what about nuclear? What about um, whitening, you know, atmospheric whitening? What about oceanic fertilisation? What about any of the things we know are direct interventions that are actually going to have an impact on them, they all go, oh, I can't possibly do that. And so they're trying to say, oh, my God, the world's going to fry itself in two and a half seconds. We know that we've got advocate ways to actually deal with it, but they're not even willing to explore it. Um, and on any one of those cases, objective analysis would say they're absolutely crazy. So that's climate. 
take other examples like affordable housing and problems with that sort of thing. So you've got two parts of that, which is a whole lot of spoilt people here or a whole lot of spoilt people's parents on the podcast basically say we're NIMBY, right? Not in our backyard. Yes, we want this sorted, but now we're going to find some way to do two things, which is vote against finding some way to just create some efficient transportation system because we've got to move people from where the work is to where the um, places you can build houses are. Our obsession with having a house rather than a flat in Australia and then all of these regulatory constraints that layer up in three or four different ways. So the reason why poor people have shitty accommodation is because rich people stop them from having a better situation by virtue of liking to say they want to do something over here and on the other side trying to protect their property price. So, and, and there's a hundred different ones in between, but if I took you through them, we're sitting there and trying to find some way to get low-cost capital um, into a whole series of affordable housing projects, stuff like that. And I'll give you another example. We do a whole lot of stuff that's clearly what I aligned with Peter Sink Singer. Um, and you know, his whole argument, which is you can do a lot more in terms of improving human, the human condition at a distance, yeah? Um, and... You just can't get people in Australia to give a shit about people overseas. So just those are the facts. doesn't matter whether you look at our level of aid budget and whether that's a good thing or private family offices, whether they want to give money, they want to give money to their next door neighbours to effectively clean up the sheets, the streets and find some way to sort of conscience wash as opposed to think through where are the places on earth that you can have the biggest impact. That was a very, very important dialogue. And thanks, Mark, because Adam and I have thought about this a lot and we've thought about a lot about our own privilege and what it means to be Australian and what it means to have impact here and overseas. And for contacts, our first angel investment was in Ugandan fintech because um, we're, we're very passionate about markets and development. Well, we have to talk about that because I've got a fintech in Zambia as well. So really, really close. I look forward <laughs> to doing that. <laughs> What's your company there, Mark? A thing called Zazu. I've got another one called Explorer School and a couple of others. But I think it's, it's going to go limit up. I think you know, I've got this, um, again, against the grain view at the moment, which is everyone's always said Africa's the continent of the future and always will be. But I think fintech and, and crypto is the thing that's going to absolutely change it. What, what sort of fintech companies are those? So one's a edtech company, not a fintech. And the, the fintech is essentially a revolute for emerging markets. Okay, yeah. We invested in a company called Azark, which is essentially building a digital bank um, in Uganda. And so it's doing sort of micro loans to people that want to buy motorbikes, right. mobile phone plans, but they're trying to create a full stack yeah. digital bank by starting right. with the low hanging fruit and then sort of expand. Um, but we're very bullish about the view of sort of fintech and crypto in Africa for enabling payments and, yeah. and consumers. No, my friend, Andrew Watkins Ball, who runs um, Jumo, you know, he just got 60 bucks from Fidelity to continue to crank in his business. And he's absolutely smoking at the moment. And I think he'd be, you know, one of the top four or five out there as well. So Mark, you have to be careful with saying 60 bucks because our audience will actually believe that. <laughs> um, Adam, should we go to the quick fire? 
Yeah. I was just saying, this has been a fabulous episode. Um, it's been really fascinating to talk about the sort of civic participation in cryptocurrencies. And so now we're going to go to our quick fire round where we ask a bunch of questions um, and you just answer within 30 seconds. Are you ready for that, Mark? I am ready. Awesome. What's one of your favorite books and why? So my favorite book is a book called Chinaman's Chance by Ross Thomas. Not relevant here unless you enjoy, um, <clears throat> you know, thriller writers. The two books that I urge people to read are Remembrance of Things of um, Times Past by Proust and the Caro biographies of LBJ, which are hard and I sat on my shelf for 20 years, but will completely transform your view of the world. Mm, yeah, I've really wanted to dive into Robert Caro's written some excellent um, biographies. What's one of your favourite podcasts and why? Ballard. Uh, Balaji Ferris, I really, really like. I like In Our Time as well um, by Melvin Bragg. Those would be the ones. I think Ferris rambles on, so play him on 1.2 and you know find some way to crank through his rubbish. But the Balaji one is just a killer. Be careful about criticising Tim Ferris. Sachin is Tim Ferris's biggest fan. Oh, no, mate. I'm, I'm Tim Ferris as well, mate. Completely. <laughs> awesome. He's we awesome. love that. Love that. Um, who's an inspirational figure that you've never met? Someone that's been very inspirational to you? Oh, Charlie Munger. Yeah, good answer. And then lastly, what's one of your favourite hobbies and why? Something that you do outside of work and reading? No, last day on earth, give me a blue sky day in the helicopter in New Zealand trout fishing, mate. Just... Oh. <laughs> that sounds like living. Uh, <laughs> and, and that will give me 25 knots of downwind in a kayak, you know, it, an ocean ski double with one of my kayak partners. That's the other thing that just absolutely kick ass. Wow. Um, and Mark, we'd love to just finish off our podcast by asking kind of what's your one piece of advice to young people that want to go out NFTs, there? NFTs. <laughs> That's you right. I can't get my kids to even, I, my kids get zero bars, but just go on the internet and try and find that New Yorker article about the Board 8 Yacht Club, join Twitter, right, and just see what's happening because that tsunami is going to hit you, right? And Australia is at zero and it's absolutely taken off. It doesn't matter whether it's cyberpunks or whatever, but this thing is go going to absolutely change the way you do it. So anybody who's sitting there thinking that Insta and Facebook and social media at the old line is the way to go compared to NFTs. Guys, you're just going to get squashed. Wow, that, that's some awesome advice. I've actually been on Twitter a lot researching and there's just so much information and activity of people that are buying NFTs and talking about DeFi. It's, it's incredible. Um, and I actually convinced Sachin to buy some NBA top shots um, right. just a couple of months well, ago. Well, just go and look at Board 8. We missed the boat, but the next one that comes like that yeah okay awesome and, and and mark if you have maybe just two minutes at the start of this podcast you mentioned the current situation in australia and what's going on with our vaccines would love to um quickly hear your opinion because i, no, I uh, it's really simple there was a twitter i tweeted something this morning some guy said it's the global failure where's the challenge trials where is anything that's actually dealing with the fact that you need some sort of you need some compulsion here. Like, why is it that you guys are happy to let society take away all this liberty and yet 
sitting there and saying, actually, we're going to mandate some positive interventions, like you have to wear a seatbelt. Well, you're going to have to have this vaccine get stuffed, right? What is going on here? Why are you prepared to lose year after year of your life because a whole lot of morons won't get vaccinated? What is that? Mental. Absolutely mental. And you're going to need the challenge trials as well, which washed by and nobody focused on. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's something we definitely agree. Um, Everyone just needs to get back, get back quick. That's the only way to do it. No, you need to be sitting there and saying, guess what? We're going to put a big, big sting in the tail. It's like when I got, I got my smallpox vaccine. I got my polio vaccine. I got, yeah, just, I've got five or six to travel. What is it? Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that frustration is going and growing. And I think we're going to see a big split in society soon between the vaxxed and not vaxxed. And yeah. it may become ugly. It's going to be a giant event of the Darwin Awards is what's eventually going to happen, <laughs> right? Like if you're too stupid to understand that actually society did make progress when it invented vaccination, right? Your ass is, your sorry ass is going to be grass. It might not be with Delta, but it will by, be by the time there's Omega. Yeah, no, we 100% agree. Um, And it is getting frustrating, but let's just hope we can get these um, rates up fast. And hopefully, Mark, some anti-vaxxers listening, I don't think there would be many, will listen to your words and get the jab. All right. Take care, guys. Thank you very much. Thanks so much for your time. Awesome.